Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to teach the scriptures today. Uh, Lord God, thank you that, uh, that John was such a good friend to the Lord Jesus. Um, Lord Jesus, we find it remarkable that you came to the earth and, and you could have picked anyone to be your nearest and dearest friend and you chose John and he's the one that we are told whom you loved. And so, Lord, as we open the scriptures today, help us to learn from John and help us to like John, uh, have a close friendship with Jesus, to love him, to learn from him, to be faithful to him. For that to happen, Holy Spirit, please join us today. Fill us and instruct us and give us life and help us learn about Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Well, here we are in the valley. How many of you honestly moved here because it's sunny? You can be honest, right? Uh, that's one of the reasons that we moved here. I grew up in the Northwest, was born in uh, Minnesota, North Dakota, right on the border. And my family uh, relocated to the Northwest when I was a little boy. And I can remember as a little boy, just kind of living for sunlight. I love the sun. And so I love baseball season because it meant as a little boy, I could be outside in fresh air and sunlight. Anytime the sun was out, I would jump on my bike and go for a ride. It didn't matter if it was 40 degrees, I would be on my bike going for a ride. I'd play outside when I was a little boy, I made forts outside. And I remember on a few occasions asking my parents if I could move into the forts that I had made because I just wanted to live outside and see the sun. Uh, as I grew a little bit older and had to go to work and live indoors, honestly, it started to take a toll on me. And over the years, I noticed that, uh, that during the winters, I would get sicker and sicker and sicker, a little more so every single year. Finally go to the doctor, intestinal ulcer, blown adrenal glands, not very healthy. And he basically says, uh, you have seasonal affective disorder. You've never heard of that here in the Valley, but it means you don't get enough sun. So basically I was allergic to my environment. And I said, well, what do I need? He said, well, you need sun. Well, I live in a place where nine months a year, it's dark, it rains. We had one stretch that was almost two consecutive months every day, no sun breaks, rained every day, never got above 50 degrees. And by the end, I, I was un honestly very depressed and physically I was very, very broken. And I remember looking at my wife, Grace, just saying, I, I can't do this. I don't, I don't see how I'm gonna make this for a lifetime. The kids started making fun of me because I was addicted to the weather app on my phone. Every day, but kids, it's gonna be sunny. Oh, it's not gonna be sunny. And, and my staff started uh, making fun of me saying I was solar powered. So that was sort of the internal joke. Because if it was sunny, we'd have meetings outside, we'd eat outside, I'd go outside. And if it wasn't sunny, I would kind of go into a depressed state. So um, what I found was that for me, light is very healing. Sunlight is incredibly 
healing. And I'm not alone. In the ancient Egyptian world, they worshiped the sun god Ra. Um, they found so much healing from what God had made. Uh, many people come to Phoenix because of the sun, right? People come here during the winter, why? For healing. They'll come from the north down here to enjoy the valley and to enjoy the sun. So surrounding us are all of these golf courses for what? Sunshine. Resorts for what? Sunshine. Water slide parks for what? Sunshine. Because light, sunlight in particular, is very, very, very healing. I'll tell you something else about light. It's revealing. Light is healing and it's revealing. That's why we have lights in our home. That's why we have lights on our cars when we're driving. That's why we have lights in our cars. That's why we have the flashlight app on our phone because if you want to have clarity, something needs to be revealed. And for something to be revealed, you need to have light to reveal it. That's why we'll even use the metaphor of this will shed light on this subject, topic, matter, relationship. Why am I talking about light? Because it's a massive mega theme of the scriptures. Every time you turn your lights on, every time you turn your headlights on, every time you use your flashlight app, every time you turn the lights on in your home, remember this, God is light. God is light. And as we jump into 1 John, and we'll be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 today, he's going to begin by telling us who God is. This is like his thesis statement, his purpose statement. He's going to introduce us to God. So in the first four verses, John basically established his authority and credibility. He said, you can trust me when I talk about Jesus because I heard him teach with my own ears. I saw him perform miracles with my own eyes and he really walked on the earth. I've touched him with my own hands. I've hugged him, he's my friend, that's Jesus. So he establishes his credibility and authority. And then the first thing he's going to teach us is about who God is. And this is really important. And this will be one of the distinguishing factors here at the Trinity Church. We are a Bible-believing, Bible-studying, Bible-teaching church. But what I need you to understand is that the Bible is for you, but it's not primarily about you. Okay, this will distinguish some of the teaching here. And that is when we open the Bible, the first thing we're not looking for is, what does this say about me? The first thing we're looking for is, what does this say about God? Because everything begins and ends with God. And the whole Bible begins with God. In the beginning, what's the next word? God, that's where your Bible starts. So everything begins with God. So before we talk about friendship or relationship or marriage or work or whatever the case may be, finances, before we talk about those things, we talk about the one thing that affects everything and that's who God is. So the Bible is for us, but it's not firstly and primarily about us. And so where John starts, he doesn't start by telling us about ourselves. He starts by telling us about God. And he uses this one magnificent um, theme. And he says that God is light. That's where he begins. And so in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, uh, I have a series of questions for you to even ponder and think and consider this week. Uh, if you have roommates or you're married or you got kids, these are things to discuss and share, uh, maybe on the ride home or over the dinner table. Here's what he says in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him, from Jesus. All right, so what John's saying is, Jesus taught me some things and I wanna share them with you and proclaim to you, that's proclamation, teaching, instruction, that God is light. There's our thesis statement, there's our theme. God is light. And I told you that light is revealing and it's healing. Okay, when he says that God is light, that God reveals all things and he can heal any person. God is light and in him there is how much darkness? None at all, that's incredibly important. We'll unpack this and I wanna really dig into this, but this theme of light is very curious because the same God who made the physical world is the same God who made the spiritual world. And because he is the architect of both, there is correlation. 
So as we look at the physical world that God made, it, illustri it illustrates truths rather about the, the spiritual world that God made. And so when we see light and darkness in the world, that's illustrative of the supernatural and spiritual world as well. And so light is one of those themes that appears immediately in your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then boom, right there, Genesis chapter one, verses three and four, the very beginning of your Bible, God said, let there be light. And so it's the first thing that God made. God starts with light. And that, that physical truth illustrates the spiritual truth about God's essence and nature and character. You go all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. The very last chapter in your Bible is Revelation chapter 22. And what it says is when Jesus comes back and he establishes the kingdom of God, there will be only light. No darkness at all. I'm so excited about that, I can't even tell you. Um, as someone with seasonal affective disorder, I can't imagine how happy I'll be in the kingdom of God. And it says that we won't even need the sun because the glory of Jesus will illuminate all of the new creation. See, when Jesus came on the earth, he came in humility, so his glory was veiled. But when he comes again, he'll come in glory and his glory will be unveiled and we won't even need the sun anymore because just the presence of Jesus and unveiled glory will illuminate all of the kingdom of God forever. So your Bible begins, God said, let there be light. And then the Bible ends that eternity will be the light that emanates from the glory of Jesus. And in the middle, in your Bible, this theme of light, it appears roughly 200 times, give or take. So it's this constant, continual theme. And when it comes to God, it says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And it's interesting because even the sun, they tell us has dark spots. Even as wonderful and great as the sun is, and I'm glad to be here, I've got the top off my Jeep, I'm living outside, I have flip-flop tan lines, I'm so excited about the sun, I can't even tell you. But even the glory of the sun is not perfect because even the sun has dark spots, but God has no darkness. There's no darkness in God whatsoever. And so in the middle between the last chapter of the Bible and the first chapter of the Bible, Jesus shows up and he says in John chapter eight, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. So he takes these beginning and concluding themes of the Bible and he illustrates from himself that he is the light of the world that in Jesus, um, things are revealed and people are healed in Jesus. That's the big theme. And so when it comes to this issue of light and darkness, I wanna compare and contrast those for you. Um, when it speaks of God as light, that means God is good. Darkness, that would be evil. Uh, light, that God is holy. And darkness, that people and things are unholy. Um, when it says that God is light, that means that God is honest. He tells the truth. Darkness is where there is dishonesty and lies and untruth. Um, light means that things are revealed. We see things as they are. Darkness means that things are concealed. That's why so much crime happens at night and under the cover of darkness and people feel less safe because darkness conceals that which is evil. Uh, in addition, light gives sight. And what darkness brings is, is blindness. What life, what light rather does is light brings life and darkness brings death. People, plants, animals, if we had no light, invariably we would go into a death cycle. Um, light is also um, safe. How many of you feel a lot safer when all the lights are on? How many of you don't feel safe or you feel unsafe when the power goes out? 
and it's the middle of night and you're home alone in the dark. So when it says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, it's this comparison, comparison rather, and this contrasting between what God is like and what God is not like. And it's really important because this is unique in Christianity. Much of the world thinks that God is light and dark. Okay, I'll show it to you. We're gonna play Pictionary this morning. I got a new toy and we'll see how I do with it, okay? This could go either way. Um, please be patient and kind. All right, I'm gonna give you two big words, okay? Look at that. I know, I know you're thinking he's got good penmanship. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, dualism versus, and I'm gonna draw in a moment, so we're gonna do Pictionary. You're welcome, okay? <laughs> And if I tap this, I'll do my little Vanna White and we'll just move to the next slide. Okay, uh, dualism versus monism, okay? Everybody needs your nerd friend. I'm your nerd friend, you get two words today. Dualism is how many? Two. Monism is one, okay. So, so let me illustrate the whole universe in one slide, okay? And I, I, I mean this, this is a Christian way of thinking that will open your understanding for everything in the world. Okay. You're like, that's one slide, I know. And, and it will summarize everything. And this is John's thesis statement for the whole book of 1 John. So what he's saying is dualism. This is how the God of the Bible reveals himself, that there are two, that's a pretty good circle um, for me. Um, if my daughter was here, she would do better. He says that God is... Uh, she is here. Do we want to draw, draw honey? Uh, she, God is what? Light. Light, okay. And in him there is no darkness. God is good. God is not evil. God tells the truth. God never lies. God is always right. God is never wrong, okay? This is dualism that the Bible and the God of the Bible sees things in distinct categories. Distinct categories. Now, how many of you have seen the, uh, the yin and the yang? It's one circle, line down the middle, black and white. What it says is God is good and evil. Okay? That's Eastern thinking, that's not biblical thinking. Most of the world thinks in that term I'd call that monism, that there's only one circle, that God is good and evil, that God is truth and lies, that God is both and, okay? And what he's doing here in the Bible, he's saying, no, there's actually two categories. There's light and darkness. And, and what this creates, think with me for a moment, what this creates is distinctions and categories. God sees differences between things, and not all of these differences are, are good or bad. Some of them are just distinctions, but... It means that God is creator, that God made the world. And then there is God's creation. And those are distinct, those are separate. Those who don't believe that, they hold to something called pantheism, panentheism, radical environmentalism. Those kinds of ideologies would say, no, 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 there is a force that imbues the world and that creation is part of God and creation is divine. Right? Any of you see the latest Star Wars movie? What's the energy that flows between all living things? The force. Okay, 
that's monism. It's saying that creator and creation are one and there's a force that flows through all that is created and that force is not distinct from creation. There is no creator. See, what's really weird is Christians preach sermons and non-Christians make movies and television shows and cultural narratives, but they're still presenting an ideology, a worldview, a way of thinking. Um, give you some other distinctions. God and then uh, mankind. Are they different? Yes. So there is God and there is us and we are different. Now, again, in monism or thinking that is all is one, they would say that actually you are part of the divine and you are God. So rather than going out to God, you go into yourself to find truth and deliverance and life. Um, even Eastern religions have something called a prayer labyrinth. Have you seen one of these? It's literally one circle. And what you do, you start on the outside of the circle and you walk in and in and in until you're in the center all by yourself because you are the center of your life. You're the center of the universe. You're the center of the world. And the way that you fix yourself, heal yourself, redeem yourself, enlighten yourself is you don't go out to God, you go into yourself. Do you get that? And, and, and we would say, no, no, there's God and us and we don't go into ourselves, we go out to God if we want to find that which is to be revealed, who we truly are, and that which needs to be healed where we're truly broken. Give me some other distinctions. Angels are different than demons. Do we believe that? If you believe the Bible, do you believe that? Yes. Okay, now, now let's say, as, as a biblical thinking person, you have these two categories. If you only have one category, what do you call them? Spirits. And then as a result, you get spirituality. And it's like spirituality is good. And we would say not necessarily because there are angels and there are demons and angels are good and demons are not good. So when certain people would say, well, you just need to be spiritual and you need to get in touch with the spirit realm, we would say, that's not necessarily safe in the same way as saying, you just need to have relationships with people and invite them into your life. We would say, are they safe people? Are they good people? Are they dangerous people? Are they evil people? Just as not all people are safe and trustworthy, not all spirits are safe and trustworthy. This is why Christianity does not necessarily just embrace spirituality. We don't just believe that spirituality is a good thing because not every spirit is a good spirit, amen? amen? Do you see how this works? Let me give you a few more categories. Um, so we believe in Jesus and then other religions. But if you put everything into one bucket, what you end up with is Jesus is one of many gods, Christianity is one of many options, and there's nothing superior or distinct about Jesus. He's just on the menu among those deities that can be worshiped. We would say, no, 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 there's Jesus, and then there's false gods. This is not even distinctions that are always bad, but there are distinctions. So God sees a difference between women and men, not good or bad, but he sees a distinction. Our culture says, no, actually, there's just one category and we see people. As a result, you can decide what gender you are and you can decide who you want to marry because there is no such thing as male and female. Okay. 
Now, how many of you are, you're tracking with me? Mentally, this is starting to make a little bit of sense, okay? The truth is, what non-Christians will do, they'll come along and this is what they want to create. This is non-Christian thinking. One circle, let's see if I can do this. That's monism or oneism. God is light and darkness. Creator and creation are all one and the same. God, gods, and people, we're all equal in the same. Angels and demons, they're just spirits, all equal in the same. Jesus and other religions, all equal in the same. There's no such thing as men and women, there's just people who get to decide what they feel they are. Okay, I hope you understand this explains the conflict between Christianity and every other ideology. This kind of affects everything. It's not just that as Christians, we disagree about some things, we disagree about everything, okay? Okay, so, so, so when it comes to one circle, the circle of monism, um, this is the symbol for non-Christian thinking. I'll prove it to you. Um, I told you about the yin and the yang, and the yin and the yang would draw a line down the middle, dark and light, and say that it's all one. So that's the symbol of Eastern non-Christian thinking. Um, when witches get together, they get together in a, a circle. Anytime there's a coven of witches, they get together in a circle. They actually call their meeting the circle. Because why? That's the symbol of non-Christian thinking. We're not far from the tribal lands, but let's say that uh, people get together in a drum circle because that is the symbol. Um, Native Americans will have something called a dream catcher, which is a circle. <laughs> There's certain religions will have the Dharmic circle. That's the symbol of non-Christian thinking. As Christians, we say, no, there's, there's two circles. There's distinctions, differentiations. There's light and darkness and truth and lies and heaven and hell and Jesus and other religions and angels and demons. And there are two categories, not one. And it finds its way into popular culture. Since we're a family-friendly Bible study today, let me ask the kids a question. How many of you kids have seen uh, The Lion King? Okay, Akuna Matata, I'm not gonna sing. The, the, the circle of life. The whole worldview of the Lion King is monism, not dualism. It's non-Christian thinking. It's not Christian thinking. So there's a life force that goes through all of the animals and all of creation. Akuna Matata, the circle of life, and everything is in the circle and no one and no thing is outside of the circle. How many of you kids have seen Kung Fu Panda 3? Okay, now, true or false, Jack Black is hilarious. True, okay? That's true, and we like Kung Fu Panda. Who doesn't like a big chubby panda with a sense of humor? So <laughs> let me be careful how I present this, but I took my kids to see Kung Fu Panda 3, and what you need to know is that films are sermons, and someone is preaching to children to teach them a worldview, okay? So we go to watch Kung Fu Panda 3, and it was, there were some funny parts, but what was interesting in Kung Fu Panda 3, um, did you actually ever see the yin and the yang symbol in the movie? Yeah, you do. And what you hear a lot about is something called chi. What is chi? Chi is the 
supernatural life force that flows between all people and things in the circle and chi can be good or evil and you can be robbed of your chi and your energy could be used for good or evil because chi is both light and darkness. Okay, true or false, that's the storyline of Kung Fu Panda 3. I am not saying, let's go pick it, Kung Fu Panda 3. That's not what I'm saying, right? And I'm not even saying, don't let your children watch movies or television. What I'm saying is watch it with them and tell them how to critically think about it and interpret it. So we got in the car after Kung Fu Panda 3 and it was a little quiet, but you know, I just waited and immediately the kids are like, well, I was, that was pretty pagan. Yeah, yeah, I was out of the back seat. <laughs> right, so we got, we got the three rows in my, that was pretty pagan. Yeah, the chi thing, that was weird. That was kind of new age. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And what's, what's this whole energy and animals and trees and people? That's, that's pretty peg. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And so we had this good discussion on the way home. Actually, they had a discussion and I was eavesdropping. Um, and I was glad because it's like, well, we're talking about it as a family. Now, what, what, I, what I would encourage you parents is, here's a little parenting tip. We don't want to raise children that are naive. We want to raise children that are innocent. Do you know the difference? Naive people have no idea what's happening. Innocent people know what's happening and they know what right and wrong are. So you can raise a child in a way that they're naive. Kids are like, what's that? That's a TV, right? Like, um, <laughs> you're 14, someone should have told you this already, you know? Oh, I don't, I don't even know how to watch TV. No, what you wanna do, you want to have your children uh, be innocent but not naive. You want them to know that non-Christians think differently and that even kids' cartoons and movies and shows, they have a message, they're a sermon, something is being taught, but you want them to be innocent and you want them to be able to think and go, hmm, yeah, that's, that's not congruent with the scriptures. That's not how the God of the Bible is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I watch a lot of television and movies with my kids and have over the years. And if I told you what you watch, you'd be like, can't believe you watch it with them. Well, if they're interested in it, there are certain things you don't want your kids to watch because it's just not appropriate. But there are other things, it's like, well, let's watch this together and let's talk about it. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, we're into a conversation in the suburban after Kung Fu Panda 3, unpacking dualism versus monism. Two categories versus one. Now, how brilliant is it that this is where John starts his letter? <laughs> if you think about it, if you're gonna write a letter, a book of the Bible, where would you start? He starts with God. And what he basically lays out is God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There are two categories and you need to start to think categorically. And the way that Christians get pushed back, non-Christians come along and they say that's intolerant. You're not letting everyone and everything into the circle. That's not loving. You're not letting everyone and everything into the circle. You're not saying that everything is okay and everything's equally true. And then we need to lovingly say, I love you and I disagree with you about everything. So let's have the big conversation about how we view God and reality. And then that has implications for gender, for marriage, for spirituality, for ethics. It has all of these implications, but the truth is that we have a different mind. This is where Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says elsewhere that we have the mind of Christ, that literally a, a Christian starts to think categorically differently than a non-Christian. Does that make sense? 
Okay? And it's not because we don't love people, it's because we do love people that we disagree with them. If I think you're following a demon, I'd like to talk to you about that. If I think you're going to hell, I'd really like to discuss that. If I think that your life apart from Jesus is not the best life for you, I would like to talk to you about him being the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to eternal life with God. I want to talk to you about those things because I do love you. And, and I don't think any loving parent would come along and have this ideology for a child that says, Everything is okay. Everything is equally right. Whatever you choose is a good idea for me. A parent comes along and says, this is good, this is bad. This leads to life, this leads to death. This will cause you to flourish, this will cause you to diminish. This will bring joy to your life, this will bring pain to your life. God is a father who loves you. And he loves you enough to correct you, to instruct you, to direct you. And I love the fact that 1 John starts there. All right. First step, God is light no darkness at all. Okay. And what that means is there is a lot of darkness in the world and we need to know that, but it doesn't come from God and it doesn't point to God. It doesn't glorify God. It doesn't honor God. And so therefore we need to walk with God and that's where he's going to go. That as we walk through this dark world, we walk with God and his light reveals to us the path we're supposed to be on and it heals us from the ways we've gone wayward. Okay. Next verse. That's a lot for one verse, amen? Okay, but I need, you to, I need you to think in biblical categories. He then goes on to say uh, this in 1 John 1, 6, and here's my question, where do you walk in darkness? And I'm not, I didn't ask the question, do you walk in darkness? Because you'd be like, no, I don't, but thanks for asking. Now, we all in various ways at various times have areas of darkness that we walk in, right? And that could be something that's untrue or sinful or rebellious or foolish or erroneous. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, 1 John 1, 6, and when you hear the word fellowship over and over and over, it's Christian language for friendship. Okay? That God is your friend. Okay? If we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This establishes in 1 John, if then, if then, if then, if then. You're gonna see this pattern throughout the book. So as you read it for yourself, and I would encourage you to do so, if then that's how this pattern works. What he says is, okay, there are people who will say, I'm a Christian, I love God, I walk with God, but you, you look at your life or their life and you say, well, actually, they're walking in darkness. And if God is light and they're walking in darkness, then they're not walking with God, amen? amen. There's been a fork in the road somewhere. God's in the light and they're in the darkness. And they're saying, no, 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 God and I are very close and we're good, very good friends. We have, a, we have a relationship together. And you look and you go, but, but, but he's going this direction and you're going that direction. And, and he's inviting you to walk in the light, truth and holiness and grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. And you're walking over here in the darkness, lies and deceit and covering and shame and folly and rebellion. And he says, you, you can't say that you love God and you are friends with God if you're not walking with God. In fact, that's a, that's a lie. Oh, now, see, now your, your community college prof would say that that is a, that is a perspective <laughs> or that's an opinion. And God would say, that's a lie. You, you see, God's back into those ca categories. Not just, well, we disagree. God's like, no, 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 you're lying. Again, these categories are very important because the world we live in, they wanna create one circle and say, well, there's not truth and lies, there's perspectives and opinions. And God would say, not for me. God would say, I see things that are true and false. They're, they're, they're truth and lies. 
And what he's saying is you can't say, I love God, I belong to God, I'm friends with God. I just walk away from God, I turn my back on God. I prefer darkness over light. Now, let me say this. The Bible's gonna use this theme of a walk with God as Christianity. And this is important because some of you were raised in homes where you go to Sunday school, you go to camp, and they just say, pray this prayer and become a Christian, and you pray it, but they don't tell you that from that point, you're supposed to walk with God. So it's not just a one-time decision, it's an ongoing decision, and it's not just something that happens in a moment, it's something that happens in a moment and continues for a lifetime. In some regards, it's kind of like marriage that way. Grace and I didn't get married and say, I love you, let's be married, okay, great, I'll see you again in 50 years. No, now we do life together. Now we build our relationship together. That's why the metaphor of the Bible between God and his people is often like marriage, that God's like a groom, that we're like a bride, and that on the day that you receive Christ, you become a Christian, that's kind of like your wedding day, like now we're in an exclusive, covenantal, loving relationship, but now for the rest of our lives, we're gonna walk together, we're gonna do life together, we're gonna build our friendship and our relationship together. And what he's saying is that Christianity, it's, it's a walk with God. Okay. How many of you have a friend you go for a walk with? Okay. God's supposed to be a friend that we always go for a walk with. And we need to remember then wherever we're going that, that we're inviting God to go with us. So when you go to work tomorrow or you go home today or wherever you go or whatever you do, you consciously remember, I don't walk alone, God walks with me. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden in the beginning of the day. And you know what, God walks with me. And I want you to see this, some religious ideologies, particularly in Christianity, they'll present this walk with God like a tightrope, right? And oh boy, you do anything wrong, what happens? You've fallen and you're destroyed and it's over. And what that creates is this great anxiety in your walk with God. I can't say anything wrong, I can't do anything wrong, I can't make any mistakes, I'm walking on this tightrope and I'm all by myself and if I fall, hell is below me and God sets me on fire forever, good luck. The walk with God is not a tightrope. The walk with God is the same as a father with a little kid. You ever see a good dad with a little kid? What is a little? What does a little kid do with their dad? Let's say they're in a crowded area or an area that's loud or doesn't feel safe. What's a child naturally do if they have a loving father? Grab the hand, <laughs> grab the hand. We've traveled internationally with the kids all over the world. And boy, you get in a crowded airport or you're in a strange cultural context, they grab your hand, right? They grab your hand and they hold on really tight. You know why? Because it's a lot safer to walk with your dad. It's a lot safer to walk with your dad. So you know what, my dad knows me, my dad loves me, my dad protects me, my dad cares for me, my dad is there for me. Uh, this feels a little strange, a little unusual, a little unsafe. Hey dad, I'm right here. Right. And dad's like, that's great, just walk with me, you'll be okay. You don't need to know everything, you don't need to understand everything, you don't need to prepare for everything. What you need to do is just stick close to dad, dad will take care of you. Again, when it comes to 1 John, he talks a lot about God as father. And some of you didn't have a good earthly father or any earthly father, I want you to know that you have a perfect heavenly father and that God in heaven, literally, I want you to see the image, like his hand is always down and it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, you're still a child in his eyes. And you can always, dad, I need help. Dad, I don't know what I'm doing. Dad, I got myself in a dark place. Dad, I got myself in a difficult place. Dad, I got myself in a dangerous place. Are you there, dad? Yeah, I'm right here. Here, walk with me. I'll get you out of this. I'll get you through this. I'll get you around this, amen? 
And this is so different than a religious view of God because a religious view of God is that God is angry with you and he wants to punish you. And if you put your hand up, then he's going to slap you. That's not God. God's a father who knows and loves his kids. And he's always got his hand out. Every time you turn the lights on, I want you to remind yourself, God is light. Every time you see a little kid holding their dad's hand, I want you to think, I can walk with God like that. I got a dad who really loves me and he's not gonna lead me into danger or harm. So what he's saying is, if you are in darkness, don't lie and say, I'm walking with dad. Be truthful and say, dad, I've walked away from you. Please take my hand and walk me through this. Get me out of this. This is where sometimes the false impression is given that you need to get your act together before you come to God. And the truth is you can't get your act together until you come to God. Just like a little kid that's lost. Any of you parents ever had a little kid lost? They're not gonna find their way out of being lost. Parent needs to come take their hand and then lead them. When we are lost in darkness, we've got ourselves in trouble. This is sin in our life, folly in our life, rebellion in our life. Truly it is not, I'll find my way back to the father. It is no, the father is gonna come find me and I need to take his hand and I need to walk with him. Every time you see a kid holding hands with their dad, remember this great truth. He then goes on in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Um, and the question here is, what darkness do you need to bring into the light? And today, perhaps the Holy Spirit will give you something. You say, yeah, that's an area of my life that I really need to bring to God for revealing and healing. Um, it's a dark part of my past. It's a dark part of my story. It's a dark part of my present. It's some temptation that I struggle with. It's a habitual pattern that I fall into. It's a way of thinking that's not life-giving. It's darkness. And so the question is, what darkness do you need to bring into the light? First John 1, 7, but, so again, I told you the if, then, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Okay. Now again, this is so critical because if you think that God is good and evil, when you're suffering, will you run to him? No, because he might be the most dangerous person of all, right? He might be the most dangerous person of all. And some of you have a view of God that God is sovereign, but he's not good. That he's not safe, that he's not loving. And so when you're struggling or you're sinning or you're suffering, you're thinking I'd go to God, but I'm not sure God is good. And if God is not good, then I'm not safe with him. Well, God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. And so what we can do is we can walk in the light as he is in the light. God is good, God is loving. God's heart is a father's heart, God is safe. God is not dangerous. God is not seeking to harm you. He's not seeking to shame you. He's not seeking to punish you. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, that's friendship with one another. Right? And we're a brand new launch team for a church plant. We're just getting to know one another. He tells us how we get to know one another. And the blood of his son, Jesus, uh, cleanses us from all sins. Now, let me, it's sort of cause and effect. So let me, let me talk here first about this issue, the blood of Jesus. Um, the Bible says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, that God is holy and we are unholy, that God is sinless and that we are sinful. That's what it says. And the wage for sin, Hebrews says, is death. And it speaks of God's holiness more than any other attribute in the Bible. So we're holy, or God rather is holy and we're unholy. So there's, there's a problem that God has with our conduct and behavior. He loves us, but he has a problem with our conduct and behavior. And because God is just, he has to do something about this, right? 
Because God is good, he can't just accept sin and darkness and evil. Now, some of us wish God would. We, we wish God would look at us and say, I'm okay with evil, I'm okay with sin. But then God would be light and darkness. God would be good and evil, and then God would even cease to be God. And so because God loves us and he wants to be true to himself, but he wants to be good toward us, God has to deal with this sin problem, and he does. And he deals with it through the shedding of blood. So if you go to the Old Testament, you'll see something called um, the Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible. And it was that God's people were in slavery and bondage in Egypt, and that literally death was coming to Egypt as a consequence for sin. But every family that in faith sacrificed an animal in their place and took the animal's blood and painted the doorpost to their home, literally death would pass over that home and God's wrath would not come to that home. And so they called that feast Passover and your Jewish friends probably still celebrate it. And this is in reference to the wrath of God that when God deals with sin, he pours out his wrath on sin and the wrath of God is spoken of roughly 600 times in the Bible. It's a mega thing. Continuing forward, pretty soon in the Old Testament, you get a temple. And in the temple, there's a priest who's the mediator between God and people. And what people do is they bring their animal to be sacrificed to the temple, and the priest then confesses the sins of the people over the animal who's the substitute, slaughters the animal, and then literally blood flows for the remission of sin. And so the pattern gets established throughout the Old Testament Sinners need a substitute. That substitute needs to die the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And that pattern and precedent leads us all the way to Jesus. And then Jesus comes. And he is a lamb without spot or blemish. He goes to the cross as our substitute. God becomes a man. He lives the sinless life we've not lived. He dies the death we deserve to die. And he literally substitutes himself in our place. And Jesus sheds his own blood. The result is that the wrath of God is appeased, forgiveness of sin is made possible, and here's what happens. Our sin, our rebellion, our folly, it separates us from God and it separates us from one another. You see this in Genesis, when they sin, they hide from God, they also hide from one another, the first husband and wife. So sin has um, vertical relationship consequences with God, it has horizontal relationship consequences with people. And the question is, well, how does that sin get removed so that we can be reconciled to God and we can be reconciled together? That language of fellowship. How do we have friendship with God and friendship with one another? And the answer is Jesus' blood. That's what he's saying. Jesus died in our place for our sins. Now, here's good news. This means God won't punish you. You know why? He already punished Jesus. Some of you, when you're struggling, when you're suffering, you're thinking God is angry at me and God is punishing me. And the truth is, if you're a Christian, he's not. He's not angry at you and he's not punishing you. Because God is light, he's not darkness, he's good, he's not evil. It would be evil for God to punish Jesus and you. That's like sending two people to prison for one crime. No, whoever did it is guilty, but you just can't start sending additional people to the sentencing. Jesus died in your place for your sins if you're a Christian, if you believe that. And if you don't believe that, we want you to believe that today and become a Christian. But if you believe that, you realize, number one, God is not angry at me, he's not punishing me. Number two, in my relationships with people, I don't need to punish them. Because you know what happens when we're sinned against? We pour out our wrath on people with our words and our deeds. 
But if Jesus died for me and Jesus died for them and Jesus doesn't pour his wrath out on me and Jesus doesn't pour his wrath out on them, then I shouldn't pour my wrath out on them either as Jesus has forgiven me and Jesus has forgiven them. I need to forgive them. Now, what this means, friends, is this, that no one is getting away with anything, that either Jesus died for their sins or they will die in their sins and stand before Jesus but it means that ultimate justice will come, whether at the cross of Jesus or the judgment seat of Jesus, everyone and everything will be taken care of. And as the Christian, this unburdens us to say, you know what, Lord, I trust you. I wanna have a relationship with you. So I want to confess my sins to Jesus and be forgiven and experience that forgiveness. I wanna confess my sins to other people in hopes that they will forgive me. I want to forgive other people so that there won't be wrath in our relationship. There'll be Jesus in our relationship. And then we can be friends with Jesus and we can be friends with one another. And I'm telling you, this has massive implications for even things like marriage. Because two sinners marry, unless Jesus died, they're gonna kill each other. And that's what happens. Unless Jesus was punished, they're gonna punish one another. Unless the wrath was poured out on Jesus, they're gonna pour their wrath out on each other. Unless Jesus paid, they're gonna make each other pay. And this is true for friendships and all other relationships. And so in this, I want you to see too, um, that the Bible is true, but it's good news and it's really practical and it's really helpful. And as you understand who God is, it changes how you view the world and everything in it, including yourself. And as you understand what Jesus has done, it changes how you relate to God and it starts to change how you relate to one another. And what this allows then, I think, um, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we start to get honest about our own stuff. Here's my faults, my failures, my flaws. Here's what I've done. Here's where I'm growing. Here's where I need to be forgiven. Here's what needs to happen in my life. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What this means is, number one, we learn to forgive one another. Oh, you're struggling there. You said that, you did that. Well, I got my own stuff. So how about... I be compassionate with you, you be compassionate with me, you forgive me, I forgive you. We're we're two failed people in this together. And it also creates empathy. Because you know what, the truth is, there are areas in your life where you're walking in the light and there are areas in your life where you're walking in darkness. And then you're in relationship with someone and the areas that they're in light and darkness are different than yours, amen? Amen. So if you're in the light and you're looking there, you're like, I can't believe you're doing that. I can't believe you think like that. That's just horrible. What's wrong with you? And they're thinking, they're over here going, well, I was, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, uh. Because we've all got areas we're walking in the light. We've all got areas we're walking in darkness. And if we forgive one another and have fellowship and friendship with one another, and we invite Jesus into the middle of it, and we understand who God the Father is, it's like, okay, let me, let me be honest first. Here, here's some darkness in my life, places that I'm struggling. And I would invite you to help me walk in the light. Ask me questions, be my friend, walk with me. And I I see some areas in your life that are in darkness and I'm wondering if I could walk with you in those areas. Maybe I bring you into the light here and you bring me into the light there and we have compassion for one another, we have love for one another, we have empathy for one another, we have forgiveness for one another and we walk together. We both take dad's hands and maybe he can walk with both of us. You see that? And this is different than a religious way of thinking. A religious way of thinking, which you'll get to in a moment is, I am light, you are darkness, shame on you. That's not inviting. That's not life-giving, that's not safe. And so his next 
question is, um, do you want to be forgiven and made clean? And the first thing he's going to deal with is uh, religious people. Religious people have two problems. They're self-deceived and they're self-righteous. And it's really important if you join us at the Trinity Church, I will speak against sin and religion. Here's why. If you only speak against sin, you end up with a bunch of religious people. And religious people killed Jesus, so that's not the goal. Amen? <laughs> but if you only preach against religion, you end up with a bunch of sinful people. So you preach against sin and religion, and you point everybody to Jesus. Here he's going to, he's already talked against sin. Here he's going to talk against religion. So he says, if we, ha if we say we have no sin, that's very religious. You have problems, I don't. You're immature, I'm mature. You have a ways to go, I'm already there. It's a good thing I'm here to help you. You're welcome. Right? Any of you know anybody like this? They're kind of smug and smarmy. Right? And you don't ask them for advice, they just sort of give it to you. Oh, I know what you need to do. I'm sure you do. I need to get some new people to listen to. That's what I need to do. Okay, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Religion is self-righteous. I don't have any sin, and it's self-deceptive, okay? Satan is called in the Bible, one of his titles, he has many, is he's the deceiver, okay? I've had people ask me over the years, Pastor Mark, why does Satan keep fighting against God if, if the Bible already says that he's going to lose? Here's the answer, he's self-deceived, that's what I think. I don't think Satan is just deceiving others. I think he's deceived himself. Have you ever met anybody that's totally self-deceived? Like they think that they're right, but they're wrong. I mean, they're wrong. And those people become convincing because they've even convinced themselves. I mean, I talked to a guy not long ago. He's stealing from his employer. I said, you can't steal from your employer. He said, no, I actually think it's a good thing. I said, it's not a good thing to steal. No, 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 my, my employer makes too much money and you know, they don't deserve all that money. I mean, you're not Robin Hood, man. This is not okay. But in his mind, he's Jesus. He's, he's Jesus in his mind. I'm good, they're evil, I'm right, they're wrong. What I'm doing is acceptable and I have a good reason for it that makes sense to me. That's self-deception. We've all got areas in our life where there's a small attorney that lives in our mind. And when we're doing something wrong, the small attorney runs in and gives the defense, okay? And you can't listen to that little attorney. You've got to listen to the Holy Spirit. And what happens is we deceive ourselves. You can talk yourself into almost anything. You can convince yourself of almost anything. Amen? Amen. So religion is this. It's self-righteousness. I don't need Jesus. I don't have any sin. He didn't die for me. I'm a good person. I, I, I'm not going to hell. I've lived a good life. That's self-righteousness, self-deception. Where do you get that idea? Well, that's how I see it, and, and, and I know what I'm talking about. Humility invites others in to speak, and humility opens an ear to listen. Pride does not allow that. So, do you want to be forgiven and made clean? So, Christianity starts with bad news. You're a sinner. You're walking in darkness. God has a problem with you. And then there's good news. Jesus came, lived without sin, died in your place for your sins. Through his shed blood, God becomes your father and you can be forgiven and have relationship with God and his people. So it's bad news, good news. But if you don't accept the bad news, you don't need the good news. It's like, if you don't think you have cancer, you don't go in for treatment. If you don't think you're injured, you don't go in for physical therapy. Right? If you don't think you're a sinner, you don't see any need for a savior. 
and then you're self-righteous and you're self-deceived. And then he goes on to talk about God. If we confess our sins, and all confession is, it's agreeing with God. God says it's wrong, you're like, okay, then it's wrong. God says it needs to stop, okay, then it needs to stop. God says it needs to change, you know what then? It needs to change. Confession is where God says something and we don't argue with him. How many of you are parents and you have those kids, right? You're like, don't do that. And they're like, I disagree, I'm four. I have a lot of experience in this. Right? <laughs> well, see, to God, we're all like kids. And when God says, okay, listen to me, we're like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I went to community college and I read a book. And God's like, no, actually, that's not how this works. Confession is where God says something and we say, I agree. I agree. I'm not gonna argue with you on this. I'm gonna agree. If we confess our sins, now this is important, not your sins. Okay, here's what religious people like to do. Religious people like to confess your sins. Christians are supposed to confess our sins, right? So I don't wanna give this to you as a mallet, so on the way home in the car with the person who drove, you're like, boy, okay, I'm glad he talked about your sins. No, we're talking about each of our own sins, amen? So as we talk about our sins, as we confess our sins, as we own our sins, that sets a safe example for others to do the same. Some of you, you've got a relationship, you're like, that person won't talk to me about that. Maybe because you won't talk about your struggles, so you're not safe for them to talk about their struggles. But if you're safe talking about your struggles, that invites them to find you as safe and talk about their struggles. Because everybody, pretty much that loves Jesus wants to have somebody to talk to, but it's really difficult to stand before a judge with a gavel. And when we only talk about their problems and not ours, we're taking that posture of judge and we're judging them and there they are and they're on display and it's in court and then they get very defensive and they don't wanna talk and they don't wanna open up. And if we're gonna have relationships that are healthy and life-giving, then we need to own our stuff and invite others to own their stuff in the context of a safe relationship. If we confess our sins, here's what God is like. He is, he's faithful, right? So God, God is good, this is amazing. How many of you have brought your problems, your struggles, your sins, your faults, your failures to someone and they didn't do anything? You're really disappointed and hurt. You're like, man, I just bared my soul and you weren't very faithful. Or rather than helping me, you went and gossiped about it to other people. You took all my private stuff public. Here is the truth. God is faithful. You could talk to God. You could walk with God. You can confess to God. You can be honest with God. And God is always faithful. God never abandons you. He never neglects you. He never abuses you. He never harms you. His, his goal is never to shame you. Did you get that? And some of you have done things in your life. You're like, if I talk about that, it's pretty shameful. Some stuff that I've done, I'm really not proud of, and it's pretty embarrassing. And if everybody knew, my life would be difficult. God is faithful, okay? Those of you who are parents and grandparents know that the, the heart of God is, is a father's heart, okay? My kids could tell me anything, and no matter how much it hurts to hear, I love them, I'm there for them, I wanna help them, I wanna bless them. And, and if they need me, I don't wanna fail them. That's God's heart, that's God's heart. He is faithful and just. What this means is, again, we're back to the cross of Jesus. 
Jesus has already paid the penalty. Jesus has already suffered and died. God's not gonna punish us. He's not angry with you. I just need to stress this over and over and over because I meet so many Christians who think that God is light and darkness. He's good and evil. He's safe and dangerous. He's loving and also angry at them. And they're walking on this tightrope. And if at any point they fail, they can't run to their dad and talk to him because he's just going to punish them. The truth is that's all religious nonsense. He's just, he already dealt with our sin at the cross of Jesus. There may be consequences for our sin, but there's never punishment for our sin, okay? He's faithful and just to forgive us. This is amazing. See, in other religions, you need to earn your forgiveness. You need to reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt, go to a holy place, suffer. In Christianity, you need to believe in Jesus. Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them. And then he died so that we could be forgiven. You need to know if you are a Christian, you're forgiven for everything that you've ever done. You're forgiven for everything that you're doing and you're forgiven for everything that you will ever do. You are, you're fully forgiven. And some of you would then ask, well, what's to keep me from sin? That loving relationship. If you know that your father loves you and you love him, you don't want to walk away from him, you want to walk with him. And when you fail or stray, you wanna confess that to him and you wanna be forgiven by him and you wanna reconcile with him and continue with him. But what holds the Christian relationship together with God, friend, is not fear, it's love. Because fear has to do with punishment, he's gonna tell us in chapter four, and love casts out fear. All of this is a dad saying, I love you, come on, let me help you. You're already forgiven. I'm just, it's already been taken care of. Your big brother Jesus paid the price. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from how much unrighteousness, okay? I know I've gone long. That doesn't mean I'm gonna be done soon. It just means pay attention because this is very important. Um, we sin and we're sinned against, okay? When we sin, we feel, here's some Bible words, defiled, dirty, unclean. When we're sinned against, we feel dirty, defiled, unclean. When we sin, we confess our sins to be forgiven, but what happens when we're sinned against? Do you understand that? When we're sinned against, sometimes we feel dirty. Every assault victim I've ever known, the first thing they do is they go take a shower. You know why? They feel they've been defiled and made dirty and unclean. And this goes all the way down to the soul. What happens is that a lot of Christians know that they're forgiven, but they still feel dirty. Okay, I can see it in your eyes, I love you. Okay, I'm your pastor, my job is to lead and to feed and to help. A lot of Christians feel forgiven and dirty, defiled unclean. I know that God forgives me, but I still wear this thing that I've done or this thing that was done to me. The sin that I've committed or the sin that's been committed against me, it's this deep, dark stain on my soul and I guess I just have to live with it. You don't, you don't. Yesterday I had my kids in the Jeep and I'm like, let's go off-roading because it rained recently and I had the top off the Jeep. So I take them out in a mud bot and a huge wave of mud comes up over the Jeep and all over me and the children, okay? Now you can't tell today because they took a shower, okay? There are seasons in life like that where it just feels like a massive wall of mud comes and you're just hit. 
like that was demonic, that was defiling, that was disgusting, that was dirty, and here I am just wearing it. What do you do? Need to get cleansed. I wish every Christian knew this. I wish every person knew this. God will forgive you for all the sins that you commit and he'll cleanse you from all the sins you've committed and all the sins that have been committed against you. From what? All of it. Okay. This is so important because you work or live from your identity, not for it. Here's what I need you to understand. In Christ, you're forgiven and you're clean. You're clean. You're clean. This is why in the Bible, God's people will cleanse their homes to show that Jesus is coming to cleanse them. This is why God's people will undergo ceremonial washing and bathing to show that Jesus ultimately is coming to make them clean. This is why before you would ascend up to the temple, you would, if you were in the Old Testament, you would wash yourself and then you would put on fresh clean clothes that were what color? White. And you would ascend up to the temple into the presence of God to worship God while singing and wearing white. Why are they wearing white? Why are God's people in the Bible always wearing white? If you believe in Jesus, you're clean. It doesn't matter what dirty thing you've done or what dirty thing has been done to you, you're clean. So even ladies on your wedding day, what color are you gonna wear? White, and somebody say, but I've done some things that I'm ashamed of, or some things have been done to me that I'm ashamed of. Do I still get to wear white? The answer is, yeah. If you belong to Jesus, you're clean. No matter what you've done or no matter what's been done to you, you're clean. Every time you turn the lights on, remember, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Every time you see a kid hold their dad's hand or mom's hand, think, I can walk with God like that. Every time you see someone wearing white, think, in the sight of God, that's how God sees me through Jesus. I'm clean. If you believe this, a massive burden will be removed from you. You'll take a deep breath and you can go live a new life as someone who's wearing the righteousness of Christ, white, clean. As your pastor who adores you, I really do love you and it's an honor to teach you this. I really need you to believe this because some of you are still haunted by things you've done and things that have been done against you and you walk around feeling like I'm forgiven, but I'm dirty, I'm filthy, I'm disgusting. You know, there's, there's something that I'll just never be able to get off of me. That's not the case. Amen? Amen. Okay. Um, make sure I've covered it all. Last, um, last question. Do you agree with God about yourself? First okay. John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. What he's saying is bad news, then good news, us and then God, what we've done, what Jesus has done. First, we need to accept the truth about ourselves and then we can accept the truth about Jesus. And if we say, I've never sinned, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a bad person, I'm a good person. And just so you know, this was me. How many of you at some point in your life, you're just like me and you would have said, I'm a good person, right? I believe God grades on a curve and I'm better than a C student, you know? So I was the kid in high school, Grace and I met at 17 in high school. She was a pastor's daughter. I was a moral Jack Catholic kid. Some Catholics love Jesus, I didn't. And the, the Christian kids would always say, well, you're a sinner and you need Jesus. I'm like, mm, not really a sinner. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, and I've never beaten anyone that didn't really deserve it. So I feel like I'm a pretty good person. That was kind of my ideology. And then I realized that sin is not just, so let me unpack sin for you. Sin is not just an action, it's a condition. 
Let me give you lots of categories for sin. It's not just an action, it's a condition. So you're born with a condition of sin, you need to be born again in Jesus with a new nature. I didn't know that it was a condition. I didn't know that the root of sin was pride. That's what Augustine, one of the church fathers says, that pride is like a mother that's pregnant with all the other sins. And I was very, 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 very prideful. I thought I was better than everybody. I mean, I've told this story before, but I had a letterman's jacket that I won as a freshman, lettered in football and baseball. And my letterman's jacket on the back, it said Mr. Driscoll, because I thought I was an adult and everyone else was a child. I thought I was like part of the faculty at the high school. Yes, these, you know, moral, you know, people, immoral, young people that have no self-control, but I'm Mr. Driscoll. I'm, I'm 15, I don't even have a driver's license yet, and I've crowned myself as an adult and part of the faculty, morally superior to the rest of the kids. So I, I realize pride is a sin, and, and pride is the sin that leads to other sins, and pride is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven, and as soon as I understood that, I was like, oh, I thought it was self-esteem. I thought I, like I got a gold star on my chart for having high self-esteem. I didn't know it was pride, and I go to hell for that. Sin is a condition, it's an action, it's rooted in pride. It leads to a life separated from God. It's living apart from God. Sin includes our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and our motives. So your thoughts are seen by God, that counts. Your words, God hears those, those counts. Your deeds, the things you do, and also your motive, why you do what you do. Because sometimes we'll even do a good thing with a bad motive. Like a guy's like, I'll do this so that this girl will think I'm interesting. Bad motive. Right, we'll do things even with bad motives. Sin includes um, omission and commission. Commission is where we do a bad thing. Omission is where we don't do a good thing. So, you know, the dad who's very abusive to his wife, that's a sin of commission. The, the guy who won't come home from work because he goes out with the guys every night and doesn't spend any time with his wife and kids, that's a sin of omission. Sin is, you'll read this in 1 John as we get further into it, it's the breaking of God's laws. So you read the whole Bible, you break any of God's laws, that's a sin. Here's one that I find most compelling, it's in Genesis 6. It says that God saw that the intent of man's heart was only wicked all the time and God was grieved in his heart that he made man. Sin is not just breaking God's laws, sin is breaking God's heart. How many of you parents, you get this? When your kids do something that is sinful, it's self-destructive. And you don't look at your kids and say, I made a rule and you broke the rule. You said, I love you and you're breaking my heart because what you're doing, it's gonna hurt you. And my, my rules are protecting you and your rebellion is destroying you. And it's not, it's not just that you've broken my rules, it's that you're also breaking my heart, okay? So I would say that ultimately sin is anything that breaks the Father's heart. And I want you to see it in those relationship terms that God is a father, like every father, he makes rules for his kids. When his kids disobey the rules, it breaks his heart and it hurts the kids, amen? So in my house, my kids will tell you, I don't have a lot of rules, but boy, the rules I do have, if you break them, you break my heart. Because I love you and I'm trying to cause you to flourish. And just even as we have kids in the room today, which is awesome, because we love kids, Let's just covenant together to raise our kids in such a way that we're not just getting them to obey rules, but we're getting them to live life in relationship with us and God, 
so that our heart is filled with joy for them and God's heart is filled with joy for them because it's not just about keeping a record, it's about unleashing a life. That's what it's about. So last point, how do we lie? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's a couple of ways we can lie about our sin. Number one, there could just be outright denying. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And, and you did, right? You did do it. You just flat out denied. Some of you were those kids. You could look your parent right in the eye. I didn't do it. And they'd be like, wow, this one is going to be some work, you know? <laughs> um, another way we can lie is partially confess. And what people will do, we've done something and we don't want them to know all that we did, so instead we tell them a little bit about what we did, hoping that that's enough that they'll go away and leave us alone and we can get away with the rest. Right? Partially confessing. Partially confessing. Third way we can lie is excuse making. Yes, I did it, but it's someone else's fault. This is the blame shift. If you were a sibling, you've had this done to you. Amen? Yes, I hit Tommy because he, hit, he took my truck. So go talk to Tommy. I'll be eating ice cream. You know, I'm out of this now. This no longer involves me. Um, this is what happens in Genesis when Adam and Eve sin. God comes and what does Adam say? Uh, Adam, what have you done? Well, actually, the woman you made, defective, defective woman. And you made her. So I'm not saying you made a mistake, but it's something to think about. Anyways... So you made this woman and she really, you know, caused me to sin. So, you know, I feel like the two of you should meet about that and I'll be praying for you both. And Adam, you know, it's shifting the blame. And then, and then God goes to Eve and says, what is this you've done and who does she blame? She's charismatic, so the devil made me do it. That's Eve's line, right? Like, well, you know, Satan showed up and it got really crazy. And, and so the man blames the woman and the woman blames the devil and God holds them both responsible because you can't, you can't start making excuses or shifting the blame. And we even find creative ways. So number one, we deny. Number two, we partially confess. Number three, we make excuses. Number four, we shift the blame. And in our culture, we found very creative ways to shift the blame. It's genetic predisposition, not my fault, right? Or it's my personality. I'm a J-E-R-K. I took a test and that's my personality type. So that's just kind of how it's gonna go. Or, or um, you know, I, uh, I'm an extrovert, so I, I set people on fire, that's what I do, I'm an extrovert. Or I'm not nice to people because I'm codependent. We, we create all of these categories, some of which might explain us, but they don't need to define us. And they don't allow us excuses to not act in a way that is godly if we're Christian. And sometimes we can even blame it on our, on our heritage, right? So I'm Irish, like, well, we fight. It's, you know, and the, and the Italians were loud and this, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, our culture becomes an excuse for certain things that are not necessarily always sinful, but sometimes it's like, no, that's not okay. You can't just yell at people because you're Irish or Spanish or Italian. I mean, like, you know, because pretty soon every group is like, well, that's not our fault. That's just how we are. And so we'll make excuses, we'll blame others, we'll partially confess, we'll deny. Number five, sometimes we'll just revise morally. We'll try and call darkness light and light darkness and good evil and evil good. And our culture has made a mastery of this. God says it's wrong. Our culture's like, no, it's not, it's good. God says, don't do that. And the culture says, no, let's celebrate it. God says, that's not supposed to continue. And the culture says, let's have a parade for it. Okay, it's moral revising. And then the sixth way is cause serving. And here, here's, here's what happens. If there's sin in your life 
and you don't really want to confess it and bring it into the light and bring it to God and be forgiven by Jesus and change, what you do is you pick some cause and you devote your whole life to it and you're gonna save or rescue or do someone something you're going to achieve or accomplish. So then when someone says, you know, what about this part of your life? No, 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 I'm a good person. Look at all the money I spend. Look at all the work that I do. Look at all the good that I cost. Don't look at that, look at this. And we try to get this teeter-totter where our good deeds outweigh our bads. And then we could just point to our good deeds and say, I'm ultimately a good person. I'm not a sinner. I don't need to confess. I don't need Jesus. I don't need help. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need cleansing. My good deeds have outweighed my bads. Look, I've I've chased my cause, I've given my money, I've sacrificed my time. Look at all the good things that I've done. I'm a good person, celebrate the good, please overlook the bad. And what God is inviting all of us is, number one, he's our father. Number two, there's bad news, we've got sin in our life. Like kids who need a parent, there's work to be done. Number three, God is faithful and just, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us so we can be forgiven and clean. That's amazing. And what this all allows, it allows reconciliation in the relationship with God. Now we don't run from God, we run to God. Now we don't leave God, we, we embrace God. Like a little kid, we walk with God. And it allows us to have a relationship with one another to where we're safe for one another, we're loving toward one another, we're compassionate toward one another, we're honest with one another. And I know that we're just starting to build relationships, but this begins with the people that you already know, the people that you drove here with, or the people that you're married to, or the people that you're raising in your own home as your children. And what he's setting in motion here is God is light, and it's like God's light illuminates all of our life, and then together we walk in the light with God as the children of God, as the family of God. And all of this can be incredibly idealistic and there are pain points along the way as we execute and exercise this freedom that God gives us. But in the end, it's a completely different lifestyle. It's a freedom, it's a cleansing, it's a forgiveness, it's a compassion, it's an empathy as the children of God walk together, all taking the hand of the Father. And as he sheds light into our darkness, we love, pray, serve together, bring it to him, we're forgiven and cleansed, and we do life together as the children of God, as the family of God. And light is revealing, it shows us who we are. And the light of God is healing, it's healing. So I'm gonna pray. Father, thanks for an opportunity to teach the scriptures today. And uh, Lord, there's a lot here. It's an incredible amount of information and, and application and implication in just five verses. Um, Lord, when we turn on our lights in our home, in our car, remind us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Every time we see a kid taking a mom or dad or grandma or granddad's hand, Remind us, I'm a child of God, and the Father wants to walk with me in light and not darkness. Uh, Lord, as we remember how forgiven we are, help us to forgive one another. Lord, when we feel condemned and ashamed, when we feel defiled and disgraced, and made dirty, remind us that through the Lord Jesus, we're not only forgiven, but we're clean. Lord, when we're struggling, when we're suffering, when we're hurting, remind us that you're not punishing us because you're just, you already punished Jesus, so you're not punishing us. There may be consequences for our sin, but there's not punishment for our sin. And Lord, I pray for my friends and I thank you for those who give me the great honor of teaching them. I pray, Lord God, that when they think of sin, they would think of it for a little while, but then they would quickly move on to the Lord Jesus. 
that, Lord God, we would move from our sin to our Savior, that we would remember his sinless life in our place, his substitutionary death in our place, his resurrection for our new life. Lord Jesus, help us to see ourselves as the light exposes our darkness, but not to obsess over ourselves, because ultimately the way that we get out of the trouble that we're in is by, by walking with you, Father God, by paying attention to you, by focusing on you. In the same way, Lord, that a child that is lost in darkness and a parent comes to take their hand, the child doesn't escape the darkness by focusing on the darkness and obsessing over the darkness and, and revisiting the darkness, but by rather following the parents leading into light and life and joy. So Father, as we hang out together and we enjoy some time together and as we enjoy the laughter and the noise of the children, remind us that we are the children of God. And today as we leave here, Father, we, we ask for the grace to take your hand and to invite you into the dark parts of our life and the, the dirty parts of our life and the dangerous parts of our life so that there would be revealing of who we are and what we've done and there'd be healing in Jesus' name. Amen.